0: The argument is that we're forced to wrestle with a series of opposites such as good and evil, light and dark, spirit and body, heaven and earth, and of course the big two, masculine and feminine. But for Jung the aim of individuation is to bring these opposites into a creative relationship. The journey of individuation is a journey into wholeness and the ego needs to become familiar with both sides of every psychic content. And he felt that the ego was constantly prone to identifying with only one aspect of the archetype, whichever of the archetype happened to be.
1: That was from the first in a series of talks given by David Tacey to the C.G. Young Society of Melbourne. And welcome to the Society's podcast. I'm Ariel Moy. The Jung Society offers a space for the exploration and development of Jungian ideas and practice. We offer talks on the third Friday evening of every month, as well as courses and workshops, a Jungian library, a newsletter and discussion groups. Please visit our website at jungsocietymelbourne.com or our Facebook page. Over the next few podcast episodes, we'll be showcasing a series given by David Tacey to the Society entitled Jung's Depth Psychology, Developing a Relationship with Mystery. David is Emeritus Professor of Literature at La Trobe University. He's frequently appeared on TV and radio in Australia, Britain, Canada, New Zealand and the US. He's brought Jungian depth psychology to mainstream universities and was also a teacher at the Jung Institute in Zurich for 10 years. David has authored more than a dozen books including Gods and Diseases, Making Sense of Our Physical and Mental Wellbeing, How to Read Jung and his latest book, The Post-Secular Sacred. Today's talk Individuation as a homecoming to self, sees David exploring key Jungian concepts, such as the ego, self, archetypes, and the unconscious, all toward understanding the process of individuation. David eloquently describes our psychological maturation, from an original experience, undifferentiated from the unconscious, through to a necessary struggle with the world as we develop our ego, and finally, to the task of coming into relationship with the wisdom of human experience across millennia, that is, the world of archetypes and the unconscious. I've included two responses to questions at the end of the talk around what it's like for students when they first encounter the idea of the unconscious and about our relationship with Jung's stages of life approach. You. This is
0: a series of talks which I'm developing new work um, which I've called Jung's Depth Psychology Developing a Relationship with Mystery and the first talk I've called Individuation as a Homecoming to the Self. So what I'll do is I'll talk through to about the hour and then have a break and then we can come back and continue it for a bit. But it's nice and cool in here, which means you'll probably stay awake. Okay, so individuation as homecoming to the self, with a capital S. Jung began with a basically Freudian view of the psyche in his, early in his career. But he rapidly outgrew and transcended it as his reflections deepened. And whereas Freud seemed to emphasize the importance of the ego, if you read particularly his early work, and the need to strengthen and develop the ego in the course of experience, Jung tended to emphasise the unconscious and our need to befriend and understand the mystery of the unconscious. And for Freud, the ego seemed to create the unconscious by virtue of the repression and suppression of one's conscious contents. The unconscious seemed to Freud like a rubbish dump a place where unacceptable desires and wishes were placed and relinquished. And so for Freud, the aim of therapy was to empty the unconscious and integrate as much of it as possible into ego consciousness. One of Freud's mottos was famously, where there was id, there shall ego be. Now Jung's research seemed almost to reverse the Freudian approach. It was, for Jung, the unconscious that created the ego, not the other way around. The unconscious for Jung was vast, mysterious and timeless. And the deeper we go into it, the more vast and mysterious it becomes. And it's from this unfathomable mystery that life emerges and the ego is formed and consciousness arises. So Jung believed that the unconscious was not merely personal, of course, but, as we know, collective or transpersonal in its dimensions, and that its contents were composed of what he called archetypes, primordial elements of psyche which are expressed in recurring symbols. Jung's conception of the psyche can be characterized as a mixture of Platonism and Romanticism,
1: while Freud's
0: is Aristotelian and rational. One, Jung, is working with a model of reality that opens up to cosmic mystery. The other, Freud, with a model that distrusts mystery and is more concerned with the development of daily life and building muscle, building psychological muscle. Freud's conception is worldly and Jung's is concerned with the intersection Of the worldly with forces beyond the world. It'd be wrong to say that Jung's concern is otherworldly, it definitely is not, but he's concerned with that intersection where this world intersects with forces seemingly of a cosmic uh, dimension. Now for Jung, the ego is like an island, a tiny island that's thrust up from the depths of the ocean, which of course is his favorite metaphor for the collective unconscious and the point of the ego is to provide some dry land or stability upon which the various aspects of the unconscious can become conscious of themselves. This is the mysterious dimension in Jung which of course is completely lacking in Freud. In Jung's view there is intentionality in the unconscious. Hence the unconscious, inverted commas, turns out to be a somewhat problematical term since whatever it is that we call the unconscious from our side appears to have consciousness within itself. James Hillman revised the idea of the unconscious and he described it as a series of multiple consciousnesses, which, of course, is a very elaborate uh, idea. But you might say the unconscious is only unconscious to the ego. But to itself, it appears to have a telos, a direction, an intention. Now, in Eastern philosophies, and many of us here in Australia have been very influenced by the East, we do not hear about an unconscious, but about a supreme consciousness. We in the West, or those of us who sort of live in the headspace of Western culture, identify consciousness with the ego. And therefore we can only arrive at the idea of an a priori universal wisdom through the idea of an unconscious. But I want to suggest to you tonight that the whole idea of the unconscious is a cultural construct. It depends on which way you're looking at it. If you're in the East and in the Eastern mindset, it's the ego that's the unconscious. And uh, the first stage of enlightenment, of course, in uh, Buddhism, involves the ego recognising the depth and extent of its ignorance, its unconsciousness, and its movement into what they call, uh, particularly in Hinduism, supreme consciousness. So it's a very interesting perspective, this one. And um, we have to be aware that when we talk about the unconscious, it's a cultural construct of Western civilization. In addition to his psychological language, Jung provides us, especially in his later work and his memoirs, with a theological language. And when he operates theologically, Jung seems to revert to the more traditional approach, finding the ego to be the seat of unconsciousness and locating conscious intention in forces outside the ego. But for Jung, the idea of God, inverted commas, is not as it is in Western religion, all-knowing, omnipotent, and wise. Rather, Jung adopts the expressly heretical view that God's knowing is incomplete and partial. God's wisdom is only a potentiality within the infinite realm of his, inverted commas, or its being. Jung's view, and I quote, God longs to become more conscious of himself and thus has a need for creation, and in particular a need for human consciousness, which is like a mirror in which he beholds his own unknown face. That's from Jung's Memories, Dreams, Reflections. Now this is a radical departure from Christian orthodoxy and Western religion, where God is imagined as perfect, needing nothing from our world uh, other than our obedience and devotion. So Western religion emphasises God's omnipotence and self-sufficiency and the insufficiency of the fallen human being. That's the standard Western religious view. Jung kind of flips that over and emphasises God's dependence on humanity since humanity is God's best chance of becoming conscious of itself. In Jung's psychology, the ego's task is to become conscious of as much psychic reality as possible. But this reality, as I said before, is not merely personal, but is uh, collective or transpersonal. So the psyche might appear narrow at first, and I'm sure that, you know, to Freud it seemed quite narrow and simply the garbage bin for everyday life. But as we move further into it, it seems to open out like a funnel until it becomes identical with the universe. The ego is, is not only faced with the task of knowing its personal history, and recovering its memories or facing its traumatic past. The ego is engaged in a larger cosmological project which is to become aware of transpersonal reality and the archetypes and the deeper unconscious. So in this sense the task of the ego in its individuation is to remember more than its personal background. It has to remember the lost wisdom or legacy of the human mind. And in typically Platonic style, the ego's role is to reach into the mind of God, remembering the ideas or forms of its unconscious beginnings. Beginnings. Now this idea finds wonderful expression in a poem by William Wordsworth, which I was reading last week, The Intimations of Immortality. And I'll quote you a bit, because you can hear how very much uh, Jung's ideas are in this. Um, Our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting. The soul that rises with us, our life star, hath elsewhere its setting, and comes from afar. Not in entire forgetfulness and not in utter nakedness, but trailing clouds of glory do we come from God who is our home. Very famous lines from Intimations of Immortality, uh, a poem written in 1807. Now these ideas of Wordsworth can be traced back, of course, to Plato, who believed that at birth the human soul detaches from the pleroma, as it's called in uh, Greek and traverses the plains of forgetfulness, losing much of the cosmic glory from whence it came. The ego, or human soul, in this case, enters the human world of time and space and experiences a certain amnesia regarding its sublime origin. However, the forgetting of our origins isn't total, and we come trailing clouds of glory Or as Jung would put it, the ego is vaguely aware of a cosmic background to its time-bound reality. So it's this awareness that there's something in our background, something missing, that sets us off on our spiritual journey, uh, our journey for completion. So I want to suggest that Plato, Wordsworth and Jung all believe that there's an original home And the home is not of this world, as it were. We don't enter this life as a a tabula rasa, that is to say, an empty slate. But traces of our cosmic origins are imprinted on the soul. As the ego matures and deepens, the numinosity of its background becomes clearer and more evident. Or we might say that the origin or source rises above the threshold of awareness and beckons us to a treasure chest of riches and wisdom from the depths of the unconscious. If the ego is sensitive to this archetypal background, which it can access, I think particularly through intuition and introverted feeling, it may be able to bring up the lost glory into consciousness and transform itself and enter a translucent world. This is the romantic and platonic version of paradise regained, of returning to the past of the human species and recovering a link with a lost reality. Now once the ego becomes aware that there's something missing, something else, which is in its deep background, it recognizes that the unconscious is more than the unconscious, but actually it represents a link to the world soul, or in Latin, anima mundi, At the same time, the ego recognises that the psyche is not just psychological, but it's spiritual. And at this moment, the psyche falls out of science, as it were, and is renamed the soul. In other words, it goes back, science shifts into religion, an ancient and archaic term that we in modernity hardly ever use without a blush of embarrassment, the word soul. If you write it in your essays at university, the lecture will probably strike it out and say, no such thing. So as the cosmic dimension rises like a star above the horizon of consciousness, the humanistic conception of the psyche dissolves and a more mystical apprehension uh, is, uh, is sort of enabled. In other words, the Freudian approach becomes eclipsed by a Jungian approach. And this is um, what Jung explored, especially in his book, called Modern Man in Search of a Soul. Now, soul for Jung is, he defines it as the vessel or container of the spirit. It's in the soul that the cosmic mind becomes conscious of itself. So that, for Jung, is actually the meaning of life. We are instruments through which the cosmic forces of creation which in Plato called ideas, or eidos in Greek, and Jung's archetypes. Jung's archetypes and Plato's ideas are basically similar, and they become conscious in the soul. So all these uh, kinds of wisdom indicate that our lives are not about us. We are servants of archetypes, or in the old language, instruments of the gods. These are immortal, and we are mortal. And just as the ego emerges, as I said a minute ago, like a tiny island from the sea, so it's taken back into the sea at the end of its life. We pass away, as we say. But the archetypes of gods live on, because they have never fully crossed the threshold into time and space. It's our task task to serve this larger design as best we can. Now, according to Jung and Plato, we gain most satisfaction from life if we do not live for ourselves alone. We live for the archetypes or for the gods, and there is enormous satisfaction awarded to the personality, and the individual feels a sense of accomplishment as soon as we create a symbolic connection with these larger forces. However, if we live only for the ego and through the ego, we feel life to be empty, shallow and hollow. This is quite ironic, particularly in view of our world today, because many of us assume that the way to live a full, rewarding life is to indulge our personal wishes and desires. In other words, to be selfish. But Jung, following the wisdom of uh, traditions, believes that to live an ego-bound life is not rewarding. And society cannot teach us how to fulfill ourselves, because society only teaches us how to live in and through the ego. It's an ego-based life that society offers us and instructs us. It teaches teaches us only the ego's art of getting on, not the spiritual art of linking back, which, of course, is the true meaning of religion, from the Latin religio, meaning to link with, relink with the source. Therefore, Jung concludes, we feel unhappy much of the time in modernity, because the larger life that we could live but are not living is not being expressed in our daily reality. And so all kinds of symptoms arise, particularly symptoms called consumerism and materialism, arise as uh, symptoms of our unfulfilled life. We long to have more, and society cynically offers us more, but the more we need is not the more supplied by the commercial industries. Now, I want to talk more about individuation. In the course of becoming conscious, the argument is that we're forced to wrestle with a series of opposites, such as good and evil, light and dark, spirit and body, heaven and earth, and of course, the big two, masculine and feminine. But for Jung, the aim of individuation is to bring these opposites into a creative relationship. The journey of individuation is a journey into wholeness and the ego needs to become familiar with both sides of every psychic content. And he felt that the ego was constantly prone to identifying with only one aspect of the archetype, whichever the archetype happened to be, and that was mainly the good or light aspect and suppressing or repressing the dark aspect. But individuation urges us to move beyond the one-sidedness of the ego uh, into a broader frame of reference in which we learn to understand good and bad, spiritual and instinctual, in some kind of holistic relationship. And of course, here is the theory of where theory of dreams fits in. Jung argued that our dreams encourage us to move away from our one-sidedness toward a holistic understanding. The major function of the dreams, he called the compensatory function, is to correct or change the one-sidedness of the ego. The dream is thus, for Jung, a source of great spiritual wisdom. It provides the messages that enable the ego to find its way between the opposites and to pull itself away from its constant tendency to identify only with the light or good side of every archetype that it it encounters. Now Jung argued that there's a deeper force of integration in the psyche which helps us in this process of coming to wholeness and he called that, of course, the self. The archetype of the self, he believed, together with the transcendent function, helps to facilitate the individuation process and the coming to wholeness of the personality. Now, the word self is perhaps an odd choice of term for something that is essentially other than the ego, given the fact that the ego is universally and colloquially known as the self. In the secondary Jungian literature, therefore, the self is usually capitalized to distinguish it from the everyday usage of self with a lowercase s, and to avoid the confusion with the ego. In Jung's primary writings, however, if we we consult his collected works, the self is not capitalised, it's never capitalised, and the opportunity for confusion is rife, especially for new or inexperienced readers. So the self, the capitalist self, is a highly technical term. And it has no equivalent in the Freudian system and its closest counterpart, we have to turn to the east and to the Hindu concept of the Atman, which often translates as the God within. Some followers of Jung become very fundamentalist about the self, assuming it to be always present and and that it will always extricate us from trouble and come to the rescue of, uh, of the ego in times of crisis. But given the prevalence of mental illness in our world and the propensity of the psyche to lose balance and become disturbed or seriously impaired, the holistic function of the capitalist self is clearly not something that can be taken for granted. The self is not to be, as they say in philosophy, reified as a thing. It may not even exist in the way that we might normally think of things that exist. It's more like a process or a general direction, an impulse, if you like, of the psyche. So the self is an intuitive idea or an hypothesis of Jung's. Some critics, some of his hostile critics, refer to it as wishful thinking on his part. The danger of this idea of the self, say his critics, especially his Freudian critics, is that it makes us unduly confident about the experience of the psyche giving us a a false sense of security in a territory, the unconscious, that is fraught with perils and disasters. And they would emphasise that the goal of coming to wholeness is theoretical only and certainly not guaranteed. If it were guaranteed, we wouldn't have so many mentally ill people in the world as we do. So clearly the self is not always functioning, or perhaps the ego isn't listening to it. Perhaps it is functioning, but the ego can't hear it, which is another biblical theme, of course, too. Now, Jung admits that his idea of the self is provisional, he calls it a borderline concept. Now, although he writes about it at length, and arguably it is the central focus of his work, there is always in Jung a sense that we must not take the action of the self for granted. And we must assume that the ego still has to do a lot of work in the process of individuation. You can't just say, oh, well, I'll leave it all be because the self will pick pick it up for me. For Jung, the ego is the center of the conscious personality, whereas the self is the center of the total personality, conscious and unconscious. Now, if I talk for a minute about Jung's theology, which is very strongly apparent in his memoirs. It's clear that he sees God, as it were, on a par with the collective unconscious. That God and the collective unconscious are very similar.
1: Both are vast,
0: oceanic, infinite and extensive powers. Jung's self, however, is different from the collective unconscious and different from the concept of God. It's like a differentiation within the collective unconscious. And I think Jung's self appears to correspond with the idea or or figure of Christ in the West and, of course, Buddha in, uh, in the East, but not just Buddha, also Lao Tzu in China. The self is an archetypal figure that connects the human and the divine, a bridge or link to ultimate reality. So the self is a transcendental concept, and most critics of Jung say it's therefore not even a scientific term, it's actually a religious term, and belongs in philosophy, not in science. This debate is still, of course, continuing all the time. Uh, In his defence, Jung says that the self cannot be known directly by the ego, and it can't be measured in a, a laboratory. It can only be known indirectly through symbol, dream, and myth. The idea of the self, it's as if Jung is reinventing the concept of a redeemer for a psychological age. He sees our scientific age as having largely rejected religion, but Jung seems to want to reinvent religion in psychological terms, replacing Christ with the self, replacing God with the collective unconscious and replacing the Holy Spirit with a mysterious function that he calls the transcendent function. To me, me, uh, his psychological system is quite a transparent transposition of the religious terms that he grew up with. Uh, Of course, he had religion drummed into him from day one by his uh, clergyman father and all his uncles who were also uh, clergymen. And so I suspect that at the background of a lot of his psychological concepts are religious ideas which he couldn't understand without translating them into other terms. Now religious people wonder why on earth Jung feels the need to reinvent the religious wheel. And they protest against his his arrogance in attempting to do so. In his defence, Jung would say that religious terms and concepts have lost their meaning for contemporary culture and he feels the need to provide a new terminology for the eternal ideas that have found a traditional home in religion but have now, as it were, spilled out of that traditional home but still need to be discussed, talked about and realised. Jung does not, of course, seek to replace religion with his psychology. That's an important uh, point. Rather, he sees his analytical psychology as a kind of adjunct to the life of the spirit, which might be helpful even to those who already have a faith and those who continue to live the traditional life within a particular religious setting. And Jung did find that in his clinical practice that people who were, say, Catholics or Jews or or Protestants and who felt there was something still in that for them became, in his therapy, better Jews, better Catholics and better Protestants. It wasn't everybody who uh, turned to his therapy purely because they were secular and lacked a, a spiritual orientation. I discovered recently that in 1950 uh, Jung was actually blessed by the Pope of the day, uh, Pope Pius XII, for returning certain important Catholics to the rites of confession and reconciliation. That's a very funny thing uh, if you think about it. Jung was blessed by the Pope for returning Catholics to uh, traditional ways. So, you know, it, it, he is a very anomalous figure in this regard, but I think what he felt was that each person's individuation is different and that uh, the religions aren't completely dead, they're only dead if we don't feel them. But in themselves, they've still got some juice left in them, even though Jung himself uh, wasn't uh, taken in by Western religion at all. I would not say uh, that he for instance, lived or died as a Christian, it's clearly that he had a different kind of faith to that. We could talk about that uh, afterwards. So the archetype of the self stands behind all Jung's work and represents the origin of the ego, but also the goal toward which the ego strives. This is, again, what makes us think of religion. The self is origin and goal. Uh, It says um, uh, in... um, the New Testament that Christ is Alpha and Omega, beginning and end. And of course, Jung is viewing the self in this paradoxical way as well. Now, we've already seen that from the standpoint of platonic thought, the successful life is one which is able to reach back into the mythic realm and to draw from it the strength and moral fiber by which we can live. We move forward by paradoxically going back but it's not a regressive movement in order to remain stuck back in some archaic past. We cannot abort the human enterprise by entertaining a subversive hope of returning to paradise. And here I think of a, a, an interesting quote from D.H. Lawrence, the uh, British novelist. We must make a great swerve in our onward-going life course now to gather up again the savage mysteries. But this does not mean going back on ourselves. We can't go back. That's from Lawrence's um, studies in classic American literature written in 1923. And I think it's exactly what Jung felt. We must make a great, what does he call it? A great swerve, a detour in our onward life course to go back to the ancient past and reconnect with it. But not to stay back in some nostalgic paradisal past, but actually to bring it into the present as much as possible. Jung wrote a whole book on this called Symbols of Transformation, Volume 5 of the Collected Works, where he says that we only remain stuck in the source, or the matrix as he called it long before the movie of that name uh, came out, we remain stuck in the matrix if we seek to subvert our lives by indulging a neurotic complex that prevents us from entering life in a meaningful way. And Jung said in Volume 5, and I quote, We can cheat ourselves of the chance of a real life if we privilege fantasy above reality. But if we do this, it is because we have chosen not to live. Not because the source is hostile, uh, but because we have chosen to remain there. End quote. So on the contrary, the mythic source seeks to impel us into life. Jung doesn't believe that that ancient source, that cosmic dimension at the heart of the uh, deep unconscious is malevolent or somehow like a vacuum cleaner wanting to suck us back into it. The more fully we're able to connect with that matrix or source, the more present we'll be in life because we'll be more animated and filled with the archetypal forces and energies that enable us to live properly and fully. And again, you hear the resonance with the New Testament, uh, I have come, so that uh, you can live more fully and more abundantly, as it says in the fourth gospel. So there are these um, interesting theological kind of resonances all the way through Jung's work. And I don't think this dimension has been uh, fully researched yet, um, probably because most of the people who... Who research Jung uh, on the whole are, are coming from the sciences, um, psychology, psychiatry, psychoanalysis, uh, uh, social psychology and so on, rather than uh, coming through theology, although of course a lot of people do uh, find their way into analysis uh, through theology. But I think there's still a lot more to be uh, explained about this interesting parallelism to live fully or to live properly, the Greeks called it eudaimonia. It's a great word, eudaimonia. And the, the, as with all these great words, it's, it's untranslatable into English. But in English, you would simply say the ability to connect with your own inner daimon, your own inner genius, your own inner meaning or, or your soul, eudaimonia. Was, the, uh, was Aristotle's term for the good life, the life of happiness. So like uh, Wordsworth, who I quoted earlier, Jung took many of his cues from Plato. In our egoic lives, we are exiled from a cosmic source, and the only way to overcome our alienation is to reconnect with the mythic ground of our being. In Jung's language, the ego is born, in inverted commas, in the act of being exiled from the self as its source. Jung seems to be following here Plato's idea of the anthropos, uh, from which, of course, we get the word anthropology. Uh, the anthropos was regarded by Plato as the original hermaphroditic man-woman, from whom all individual souls derive as splinter souls from some original source. When you uh, reading today, near-death experiences, you know, people who seem to have that kind of going through a funnel of light and then entering this sort of great cloud of, of glory the other side. Um, uh, that, that kind of experience is, is very close to the, to the Plato and to the Jungian uh, understanding of our connection between this reality and the, the deeper Pleroma reality. Uh, Jung believes that the self is unknown to the ego at first, and it's only known to the ego through projection. Projection particularly on parents, parental figures, uh, when you're a toddler, and then later on uh, to other figures, uh, particularly uh, beloved figures, uh, love partners, um, and, of course, um, those with whom we work and quarrel and fight, etc. The ego is it lives in this kind of state of trying to battle with its own projections. And and part of the individuation trial is to try and bring those projections back and try and understand that the way we see people is being heavily influenced by unconscious psychological materials. And that process, of course, has the wonderful name of introjection. To introject, it doesn't mean that you then lose interest in other people, they become irrelevant. On the contrary, it means that in a sense you become aware of people's other reality for the first time because you're no longer projecting uh, your own material onto them. Now how these archetypes got there is a a question that Jung often talks about in his collected works. And he just says, I've no idea, it's a just-so story, they're there. I mean, Plato dealt with it by saying they're the ideas in the mind of God and just left it at that. So even a greater philosopher as Plato had no explanation for how these archetypes actually got there. Jung says they're metaphysical questions and that as a psychologist he's more concerned with the phenomenology of the archetypes rather than with their their beingness, their uh, ontology as the as it would say in philosophy. So the secret of living for yon was to live close to what the poet, the English poet John Keats called negative capability, which he defined as the ability to live in uncertainties, mysteries and doubts without any irritable reaching after fact or reason. It's a beautiful um, idea that's been taken up, of course, by the post-Freudians in London Uh, particularly by Wilfred Bion and others, but John Keats, to the ability to live in uncertainties, mysteries, and doubts without any irritable searching after fact or reason. Keats felt that the intellect uh, can impair our lives because uh, we're asking too many rational questions, and that the big questions are actually questions that we have to submit to rather than fully understand. And again, we can hear the resonances of a religious tradition in that idea too, where they say, just believe, don't ask questions. However, if, if the intellect becomes too cynical and too clever and too reductive, always wanting to control and understand things, it can, Jung says, subvert the individuation process. And uh, a lot of the most uh, most persistently neurotic of his patients were intellectuals and academics and people highly intellectually trained, because they were so wedded to their to their to their reason that they didn't allow the non reason to actually enter into their lives and inform their their viewpoints. So the journey of individuation. Then uh, this will be my last point before we have a little break. Um, is threefold. First, in a state of innocence, we are embraced and contained by a mystery in an unknowing way, in the way the infant uh, is, com- is completely unknowingly contained. And luckily, thanks to the miracle of love, we love the infant and provide the infant with enormous sense of um, support and love. Uh, and that really acts as the model for the ego soul relationship in later life. Uh, The second stage is where the ego struggles to make its painful way into the world, separating from the primal source, separating from the parents, and battle on, leaving home, in order to battle on in the world uh, and to try and adjust to the world and its norms. Jung felt that not being able to forgo that connection with the original cosmos, that original source, was the basis for many psychic afflictions and, and neuroses and addictions. He says in, uh, in the same volume I'm talking about, Volume 5, uh, Symbols of Transformation, that the pathological person has a fatal tie to the source and won't let go. <laughs> and it's funny, really. The pathological person has a fatal tie to the source. But so does the genius. So does the artist. So does the creative person have a tie to the source. And I suppose Jung's differentiation would be, yeah, but in their case, it's not fatal. In other words, it allows them actually to live life while continuing to have this kind of, if you like, this umbilical cord connecting to the the womb of the the deep unconscious. So that's why in Jung's work, the relationship between mad people and, and creative people um, is always close at hand. It's, they say, share a similar psychology, which is an inability to become totally uh, won over by this world and its, um, and its egotism. Both the madman and, and the madwoman and the genius uh, suspect there's something more there. And of course, they're both right. And I suppose, as I said, the difference is the mad person is overwhelmed by that otherness and the, the genius actually draws from it in order to create their art or their life or their, um, or their vision or their philosophy or whatever it is that happens to be their, uh, uh, their, uh, their gift. So as the ego battles with these archetypal figures, the theory is that the self is there to actually help the ego in this process. As I said before, I think uh, it's a mistake I often find in many people who read Jung and who try to follow Jung to get blasé about this and to feel that the ego can relax and because everything's going to be honky dory you know, the self will, will, um, will uh, make everything okay. And I think that's a kind of a misuse of Jungian theory. Every July I, I teach in a summer course at the Jung Institute in Zurich and I, I do love a little saying on the wall there, on one of the levels of that house by the, uh, uh, by the lake. One of the, one of the uh, sayings is, a little young is worse than none at all.
1: <laughs>
0: and I think that's a terrific saying. Um, it's from Marie-Louise von Franz. She was always the, uh, the one to say what everybody else was too scared to say. Um, and she it was a woman of enormous wisdom, whose works I enjoy very much. Although, interestingly enough, they've gone out of fashion now. I hardly meet anybody anymore who reads Marie-Louise von France. I'm, I'm not sure why, but it seems to be the case. So this is the, um, <coughs> this is the uh, process we've, we've, uh, we're dealing with here. And as I said, the scientists of his day felt that Jung was um, really woolly and that he was a mystic who had abandoned scientific principles of psychiatry. Now, when they called him a mystic back in the 1910s and 1920s, they were not being flattering in the way that we might today. If we say somebody's mystical, you know, it can be a compliment. But in those days, mystic just meant that you'd been taken captive by fantasy and delusion. But I would say, of course, in in Jung's support, the fantasy he was involved in was an important one. He was trying to develop a new science of the ancient idea of exile and homecoming. And he felt it was time for science, not just religion, which had had the the primary uh, stake in this until until then, Uh, that it was time for science to come to terms with the life of the soul and its journey from innocence through experience to innocence regained. And again, if we can think of a parallel with, say, the New Testament, Jesus says at one point "It's uh, that unless you become as little children, you cannot enter the kingdom. And I think what Jung would emphasise about those in crucial words is that Jesus didn't say unless you remain as a little child, you cannot enter the kingdom. He said unless you become as a little child. And I think that's the crucial word there. The, the word is become, that the, um, the individuation process necessitates losing childhood, taking on adulthood and all its problems and all its pleasures too, but enormous problems at the psychological level. And then hopefully we lose our adult, uh, uh, James Hillman calls it our adulteration. <laughs> We go beyond the adult phase and recover a childhood again where we're able to sort of feel the, the clouds of glory that trail behind us, as Wordsworth puts it in his poem. So partly I think what uh, Jung is getting at is that this quest, this, this journey to, from an ancient home toward an ancient home, the movement from omega to, uh, from Alpha to Omega, from beginning to end, is an age-old archetypal process and that we now need more language and a new language because the old language, for many of us, and for me too, is dead and doesn't have much meaning. So uh, it's the aim of science to act as a kind of a handmaiden uh, to religion and theology, to reinvent the big ideas in religion and in philosophy as well as theology and to give them new life. I want to end with um, a few comments about uh, how, I think, the the midlife crisis plays a vital role in this model about homecoming. Now, fundamental to Jung's theory of of development, of course, is the idea of a midlife crisis, which, of course, uh, I don't think he termed that actual phrase, but, of course, the idea of it uh, is central to his work. The ego grows strong, grounded in social reality, and full of its own power and substance. Eventually, however, it must be broken or displaced so that we can see that its task is not to serve itself, but to serve a higher reality. Now, the ego is not the self, but an instrument of the self. And if the ego dares to believe that life is about itself, It's setting itself up for a terrible fall. And this is not the mythic fall at the beginning of time, but a literal fall in time present. In the course of psychic development, we grow used to being egos, identities with free will and volition. And as human subjects who stray far and wide from the original uh, presence, We move so far from it, we wonder if there is any divine presence at all. Or was it merely a dream of the ancient past, a poetic idea enshrined in literature and sacred tradition? For the well-adjusted ego, which Jung didn't like, by the way, in people who were too well-adjusted to society, he liked to see a healthy neurosis (laughs) operating to prevent you from full adjustment. But um, to a well-adjusted ego, the divine becomes a rumor only, not an experience. And it's something the ego can't be bothered with and because it wants to get on. That's what the ego is about, getting on, not get, getting back, which is what uh, uh, religion is, reconnection, getting back. The ego is programmed to keep going on and society make sure it goes on and on and on. Uh, At least the fantasy is that it goes on. Now, ironically, in Jung's theory, we only recover our true nature when we go through a second exile or alienation. There's the first exile I spoke about. The second exile is our eventual estrangement from our ego selves, our ego identities, from the ego-bound world we have constructed It was the poet Rilke who said that the heart of the human being, we long to become strangers to ourselves. It's a beautiful phrase. We long to become strangers to ourselves. Not in that negative, alienated way that creates anxiety and panic, but in that deep and mysterious way, which means that we reconnect with, with something beyond us. So being an ego is a kind of game we play. And uh, it's a game which, of course, runs out of steam at a certain point in our, in our lives and we have to reinvent the game. So the irony of individuation, then, is that our, our human home is not our true home. And the feeling of comfort and belonging and adjustment are illusory, which, of course, is, is what Buddhism is very keen to point out to everybody who begins a life of meditation practice. To begin the true homecoming, a second alienation or exile is required, where you feel unreal in this real world, where you feel dissatisfied with the satisfactions of the world. Our normal humanity is interrupted, and that kind of interruption has a deeply therapeutic effect, even though, of course, it's terribly painful to go through that experience. And Jung felt that this experience is primarily located around the middle of life. But it's clear that this is by no means the case. I notice psychologists in America now talking about the quarter-life crisis, for instance, <laughs> rather than the midlife crisis. And then there's, I guess, a three-quarter-life crisis, too. And then there'll be a one-eighth crisis and so on. I mean, it was just crisis from beginning to end. Very good for psychologists and, uh, and not much good for anyone else. But Jung once said that the defeat of the ego is a victory for the self. And it's very hard for us to understand that. A defeat of the ego is a victory for the self. This paradox runs all through his thinking and runs through all religious and mythological constructions and cosmologies. Naturally, the ego tends to shirk this dreadful experience because it wants to, you know, it's filled with its own survival needs and its survival uh, is important to the ego. But it requires a real shock at a certain point, a nudge, a disruption, to push it out of its comfort zone and into a larger encounter with the whole of reality, visible and invisible. And in this crisis of development, the integrity of the ego, Jung keeps saying, has to be maintained because the ego has important work to do. It can't afford to be just destroyed or swamped. It must not be crushed or destroyed by the the tidal wave, the tsunami that comes up from the unconscious. It has to deal with it. The ego is made to realize that its role is not to lead or control but as I said, to serve a mystery that is greater than itself. And that kind of, in that serving, in that serving we find our fulfilment and we also find our homecoming. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. Two, two main, um, you know, as you may know, I, I teach a course on Jungian psychology at the university and looking at my students over the last, say, 20 years, two main things come up. Um, one is to identify with the unconscious and actually capitulate to it. And, and they're the dreamy kind of students who so are sort of like hippie types, who are sort of, you know, high on, on a natural high and you can see their eyes they're kind of they don't even need drugs because they're, they're already there and that's um, a kind of a interesting position but it's a kind of a false high in the sense that they've capitulated uh to the unconscious and and they tend to be somewhat passive in their ego structures they won't actually make decisions and they're, they're always looking for signs, always looking for signs. And of course, the more rational academics think that I'm breeding a group of paranoid students because everything they look at is a form of synchronicity. <laughs> everything they look at is a symbol. You know, there's another symbol. There's another symbol. And a society that can become almost paranoid. So you can't actually live a normal life if everything is heavily invested with uh, some... And that's a good example of where the tsunami has, has actually crashed over the head of the ego. The ego is under the water, and it's decided that it's quite nice down there. I'd like to be under the sea. <laughs> in an octopus's garden in the shade. We all live in a yellow submarine. I mean, that's, that's that kind of response, and which I find a lot in my more receptive or more kind of, um, you might say, sort of uh, cosmic students, the the ones who are are using the tarot cards and and the I Ching and watching their dreams for the next move. And Jung would say to such people, look, that's okay, but the ego has to make some decisions too. I was just talking to Gillian in the break. that My mother, who wasn't, uh, uh, she wasn't aware of, uh, psychological language she used theological language and and she would say God helps those who help themselves <laughs> and, um, and and if you translate that into psychology it's uh, like saying um, the self that the, the higher self can come to, to our, our rescue and even redeem us to to an extent uh, only if the ego is prepared to uh, put in work and and effort to understand it itself, and and the unconscious, and, and the individuation process. So, the individuation process appears to be a, really a dialectical one. It's not just one way. And then and then I get the other kind of of, of student who decides that all this is total nonsense, and that um, everything uh, of the realm of the you know of the symbolic realm is just a complete illusion. It's all airy fairy. And uh, that's uh, the opposite problem, which is the ego is so far above the water that it doesn't even get wet. It doesn't even feel the, the tsunami wave of the unconscious. It, it refuses to submit to the power of the unconscious. Um, that kind of uh, defiant will of the ego, um, it's a very, actually, it's a very masculine position. I find quite a few of my male students, particularly adopting this position. They just refuse to acknowledge or respect that the unconscious is anything to teach them at all. And that's the other extreme. That's the, the extreme through sterility rather than the other one, which is the extreme through um, renunciation or capitulation to the unconscious. So I think in um, the interesting volume on this is um, Jung's Volume 7 of the collected works called Two Essays on Analytical Psychology, where he says the desired response is what he calls a critical uh, dialogue with the unconscious, a critical dialogue, not either capitulation on the one hand or denial and and, uh, rejection on the other hand. But if there can be a dialogue get started, then something healthy is happening, which is... uh, I think, for you know, the individual's ultimate, uh, ultimate gain and, and benefit. In, the, in the, 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 the good, bad old days of, of um, the Jung Institute in Zurich, they used to say that uh, young people aren't able to properly deal with the unconscious at all because they haven't got a developed enough ego to actually withstand the, the, the tsunami, to withstand the actual onslaught or attack. And I used to feel that too, um, to some extent. But I think that that was a somewhat comfortable illusion of the bourgeois middle-class world of Swiss-German society that sort of said that um, you had all these years to to uh, you know get your career and your family, and then bang, you know, at the stroke of noon, the descent begins, as he says in his essay on the stages of life, and I don't think the world works like that anymore. And I think that that theory that the midlife crisis uh, must occur at midlife is very dated because of the fact that society is now far more disrupted and unstable than it was in Jung's time. For instance, the church has much less power now than it did in Jung's day. The family has much less power and uh, uh, isn't stable anymore. In Melbourne here we have more families breaking up than staying together. And uh, this can occur when the child is two or three or even one. And uh, all these kinds of uh, uh, disruptive changes in society has I think had a big effect on the psychology of the individual. So it may not be possible anymore to develop a theory that says the first half of life is to be uh, a stable time for the ego to uh, to get grounded, and in other words, these I see these processes as uh, might they might mesh together. The ego will always need to develop, or as you say, to be you know uh, immature, or the other word you used uh, to uh, to was it reckless. Yeah, but the ego um, might have to accept that the unconscious has to be uh, dealt with at a very a much earlier stage now. And we're seeing this happening in, uh, in childhood development that um, whereas depression used to be experienced mainly by adults, now, for instance, uh, very young people are suffering from depression as, as early as, or uh, well, particularly the early teens, you know, like 12, 13, 14. 15. So by the time they get to 18, they feel like they've lived three or four lifetimes in terms of the suffering they have gone through.
1: We hope you enjoyed David's wonderful talk, exploring Jungian ideas around our original emergence from the unconscious collective pool of human experiencing. He notes that when our ego engages with this world of archetypes through the process of individuation, we feel more fulfilled, whole and alive. Thank you for listening and please visit us at www.jungsocietymelbourne.com or have a look at our Facebook page.